When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Top tech companies like Intel have a secret to their success. They get the best talent, reliable infrastructure, and save on costs by expanding in Ohio, the new Silicon Heartland. Learn how your business can succeed in Ohio. Visit successinohio.com. Pantheon Podcast. So wonderful to be here, to be here with you. Hope you're sleepy because we're going to have something for you. And this is Nick St. Nicholas used to be in Steppenwolf. So with that, wish you a good night. Sleep tight. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could book some? Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Story's true. Well, have you read this one? Yes, you read it. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and roll wants something to read. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. Uh, with me, as always, is, uh, yes, the Rock and Roll Librarian, Shelly Sorensen. That's right. Almost ready to be the permanent Rock and Roll Librarian, right, well, Shelly? Well, the more, more full-time Rock and Roll Librarian. Yes, permanently, permanent is permanently. Permanent is a kind of a heavy word. Oh, you think? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I guess it is kind of heavy. Huh? Yeah, so how are things? Oh, things are okay with me, but you've had quite a week. Yeah, I guess we should inform uh, our listeners here um, that my band Tin Man was on uh, stage at the Gilroy Garlic Festival when the mass shooting occurred on July 28th uh, at 5.41 in the evening. Uh, It was a harrowing experience. Uh, The uh, band is all okay. Um, we, uh, survived, but unfortunately, uh, three, uh, kids and, and all three of them were kids in one way or another, um, uh, did not. And, uh, 12 people were injured. Uh, but you know, that sounds horrible in and of itself, but I can tell you it could have been a lot worse. Uh, the police, uh, Los Gato, uh, excuse me, the Gilroy uh, police showed up immediately within one minute, uh, put the shooter down, and uh, and it was over, uh, except for uh, the consequences that uh, continue and continue on. Uh, for example, we have been able to get down there and uh, pick up our gear. Uh, we've been in contact with the FBI. We 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 speak to them uh, almost on a daily basis. Uh, obviously, we've been on the uh, the news. Uh, a lot of people have seen us on. Uh, um, on various uh, media outlets uh, over the last week and things like that. So, so that's uh, that. That was my week. Yeah, a harrowing experience that will take time to get over, or if if at all. Uh, we'll get yeah. through it. I yeah. mean, you know, we like I said, you know, we all came out of this unscathed. Um, there are there, yeah, yeah, you know, we're all suffering from um, uh, various levels of PTSD. Uh, you know, um, you know, uh, and I think that's a fair uh, terminology to oh, use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've talked, uh, we've spoken to. Uh, uh, 
to some professionals, and uh, we've actually spoken to people at the site who have assured us that, oh no, this is this is a real thing, and uh, you know, it's just. Um, it's just it, it's insane that we just keep on doing this over and over again uh, without any change uh, in policy that would uh, at least alleviate the situation, if not eliminate it. Right. Uh, and uh, we as a, a society uh, wrongly refuse to do anything about it. And um, it's infuriating. And I and I guess I, I get a little bit more of a say than most people because I am now a mass shooting survivor. Right. And as you were pointing out earlier, there's more of you now on, on Earth, at least in the United States, than we would care to have. Yeah, so this it's is becoming it's a, a larger thing. group. Yeah, it's a constant thing, and uh, you know, I brought that up to uh, various members of the media and uh, uh, and even uh, some of the city people and things like that. It's just you know, the the, the wrinkle that I felt was a, a little bit different is you know the amount of resources that uh, are spent because. Uh, one disturbed individual decides to go and get an automatic weapon or a semi-automatic weapon, excuse me, uh, with this particular incident and, you know, wreak uh, as much havoc as uh, they and almost always he um, uh, can do. Uh, and, and then, you know, the, the city, uh, uh, the police in the surrounding areas, uh, the millions of dollars that are expended to have to, uh, deal with the, the aftermath is, uh, is extraordinary. And, and I, and I think should just, you know, be add, add another wrinkle to the argument that we really don't need weapons of war on our streets. Totally agree. Yeah. I'm with you there. So anyway, so that's uh, that's what uh, what happened. Uh, we figured that uh, we should uh, inform uh, our audience uh, as uh, as we go along here. I've done so on Deeper Digs in Rock and, uh, uh, you know, we're not going to make a big deal out of it. Uh, you know, this has uh, it doesn't have a lot to do with music, it has a little to do with music because yeah. we were playing music that's up right. there. And, and this has know. happened at music yeah. events. Yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, yeah. There has a- there have been some uh, articles written uh, specifically with that sort of angle. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, this, this sends, tends to be a trend now. Uh, you know, obviously it's a soft target. Uh, you know, an angry individual uh, can find, uh, you know, uh, the opposite of how they're feeling and try to uh, make people feel like them, you know, take joy and, and turn it into madness. Yeah. You know, so, so that's, that's that. Yep. Yeah, it had to be said because it's on our minds right now that we are going to do a podcast and uh, talk about joyful things. Yeah, and especially (laughs) this particular episode because I know you've been dying. I know. I was waiting for somebody to write a book about this fella uh, because... I, I try to talk about him on every podcast I do. Yes, you, <laughs> I, I think I, you you do. I pretty much uh, get have, a plug I in think. Yeah. For this particular English chap. That's right. I have a I have a thing for him. Yeah. Which I think is uh is is well uh deserved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and him being Nick Lowe. That's right. right. Nick Lowe. Um and the book uh is called Cruel to be Kind which, as he likes to point out, is 
his one of his only hits. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> and, and we'll get into why that may be. That's and, right. And uh, uh, dissect uh, the personality of one Nick Lowe. And it was written by Will Birch, right? That's right. And Will is also a musician. Uh, and he met Nick uh, in the early 70s when they were both playing pub rock at the same time in London. Yeah. And uh, so he has a, it's kind of uh, reminds me in a way of the slant that Warren Zanes took when he wrote the book about Tom Petty, uh, being a fellow musician and uh, actually having uh, known the person professionally and uh, in a friend mode and um, having that special insight into the person. So uh, it's not a, officially an authorized biography because as Nick himself said, that would make it too uh, kind of stink of being whitewashed. And he wanted Will to tell the unvarnished truth. But Will Birch did have access to, to Nick and also friends, family, and other musicians that have worked with him over the years. So I think it was a very well-rounded and, you know, true to to the person and, and music of Nick Lowe. Well, let's get started with a song. Um, and the most obvious song to get started with <laughs> is the one that is sort of named for you. It is. Uh, Shelly, my love, spelled uh, in the same way you spell your name, which I believe is also the spelling of the poet. That's right. And uh, so let's hear Shelly, my love by Nick Lowe. Shelly, my love, I only long to be where you are. Shelly, my love, now and forevermore, Shelly, my See, I catch fire, and soon I'm all aflame. I feel it start. <sighs> oh, you just, just gotta love that, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> now, but, is is that why you love Nick Lowe so much? Oh no, I hadn't even actually heard that song uh, till I started. You know, a few years ago, I started really digging kind of into more of his materials. I've read a lot about him, you know, articles, and I've heard a lot about him, people who were interviewed and talked about him. And I, I was always curious about who was this Shelley? I mean, was was she somebody that he had, you know, a relationship with? And so this is one of the questions that was actually answered in this book, which is, the answer is, it was written about one of his um, relationship uh, ladies named Tracy, but he decided that Tracy wasn't as kind of melodious of a name as Shelley was. So somehow well, he pulled Shelley no out of the... Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't know where he, why Tracy he decided on the name Shelley. Love. Yeah, you're right. Shelley, <laughs> and do you Shelley know, Rod Stewart covered that song. Oh, yes. very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Wow. So I did learn some other things that I'd always been curious about um, him. So that was really special for me. I have one unanswered question that maybe we'll get to at the end. And since I know that you're going to be interviewing the author, yeah, 
Um, maybe you can ask him this question. Uh, which is, sure thing. Hold on a minute. He... Let me, let okay. me write it down. Okay, go ahead. All right. How did he chip his two front teeth? And when did he have them fixed? So, oh, yeah. So yeah. the chipped teeth, the, the chipped teeth? Yes. Yeah. It is. Well, <laughs> uh, it appears on uh, photographs in the early albums and yeah. then is replaced. Well, yeah. that just takes money. So no, I maybe know, that but may, I, I, just... I, I don't know how he chipped it, but I'm sure I know how he got them repaired. Yes, I know. So, uh, but I will ask for you. Uh, thank you. Thank with you. that, so <laughs> all right, all right. All so right. I think I think Nick, uh, you know, is from that class of uh, post Beatles, uh, post glam, and starting to look in a different direction, which you know begins uh, the singer songwriter uh, era of that, I guess, the pub rock, uh, as you mentioned uh, here, that kind of got big in uh, in Britain in the uh, the mid-70s, right? Yes, and actually, Will Birch has written another book about that uh, era, No Sleep Till Canby Island, the great yeah, I'm really pub rock to revolution. Uh, well, that, that one will go in the, uh, in the library for us to read when we get there in our main uh, series, Rock and Roll Archaeology. Yes, but, you know, Nick Lowe is so many... Other things, you know, he's a, a great songwriter, uh, a producer, an incredible bass player and guitar player, and a really great singer, too. And um, so, you know, he's spanned many, many genres and many decades, and he's actually still got quite a, a nice career for him, uh, going out playing music and making records still. Yeah. Now, I'd assume that, uh, you know, he grew up on, uh, you know, pre-Beatles British uh, music uh, and probably fell in love with the Beatles when they uh, in their cohorts of the British invasion era. But um, they probably were uh, exposed to the same um, uh, musical influences of that era, which is, you know, the Skiffle era, right? Right. And he, yeah, he was born in 1949. So um, he's definitely on the younger side. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just after the war. And his father was actually a Royal Air Force pilot in the war. And so when he was, uh, I don't know, about 10 or so, they, oh no, before that, they traveled around because his dad was an important person in the RAF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a career out of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. So uh, he got exposed to all kinds of uh, influences uh, just by being in military bases at different parts in the world, right? Right. And I think one of the main things about being overseas for some kids of that day where they got to hear more American music than probably the kids just listening to the BBC in England um, he was uh, greatly influenced by American music, which we'll find more out about as we talk about the book. Yeah, um, al- almost all those guys were uh, mm-hmm. after the war and growing up. And, you know, we've heard the story so many times from the, the various major rock bands and musicians uh, from from England. Yeah, definitely. Um, one, one cool story about, uh, you know, just as rock and roll was hitting the UK in... Uh, the 50s you know the mid 50s with you know little richard and tutti frutti came out and everybody was wild about that um he actually lived in um jordan for a while because his father went over there with a an outfit to protect um king hussein of jordan during the suez canal crisis so Mm. 
And uh, one one thing I thought was really fun was that King Hussein gave um, Nick's dad a red Rolls Royce, no, Jaguar, excuse me, I almost made a horrible faux pas, <laughs> a red Jaguar, which they had as their family car for many years and shipped it different places that they lived. Not a bad way to uh, get around. No, not no. a bad way at all. He got a little ukulele from his grandmother, who was also had been in music. There's a, a really good kind of backstory to Nick's family, which you can read about in this um, book on his maternal side, many of them in musical theater and, and that kind of thing. So his grandmother gave him a little toy ukulele, and he started you know, like we said, listening to Skiffle, Lonnie Donegan, and Ernie, Tennessee Ernie Ford, and which, who wasn't Skiffle, but... Uh, no, um, I was, was going to break in and say, hmm, yeah, okay, no, I don't country, remember him on the You know, Skiffle he loved circuit. country, American country music. So he loved getting up in front of the company, and his mother and grandmother um, encouraged kind of encouraged him, him oh, yeah. to perform, but he liked it. So yeah, he was, I, I, I don't I think know he was feeling, like a... Yeah. A musical genius at a young age, but he was definitely musically inclined. And, and, he, and, and a natural performer. Right. And right. a natural performer and a funny guy and knew how to kind of butter people up and, you know, kind of rule the, the stage. Yeah. Well, so. let's uh, let's remind people, uh, you know, a, a fun song. We've used this uh, before in our telling uh, of uh, early rock and roll and some of the influences. And definitely Lonnie Donegan's Rock Island Line was a huge influence for the kids in Britain at the time. So let's play Rock Island Line. Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is a road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. And if you own the Friday got Friday like you find to get your ticket at the station on a Rock Island Line. Yeah, and I think it's worth uh, you know noting that um, Elvis, you know, who came out around that time, Elvis and Lonnie Donegan were um, contemporaries. You know, both, yeah, and they were both interested in performing Black American music. Right, and that's what skiffle was basically using oh, very yeah. Yeah. simple instruments to you know do folk music and you know and yeah the, the english the english version the the skiffle version of course included you know uh, folk songs of uh, the island of Brittany, whereas you know elvis didn't have that side of things didn't have the english traditions that uh, those kids did but you know he grew up with african americans and uh, elvis and yeah. uh, you know and and that's where he went um it is kind of interesting you can see some parallels uh, to that mm -hmm. you know and um and much like but this Bruce, is not a story about elvis no no and i was going to say much like bruce dickinson who we just talked about last time uh, of course nick was sent away to boarding school mm -hmm. um and uh, this was i guess you know the normal thing in those uh, days middle class upper class yeah. english uh, boys yes of right? course. 
He was 10, and uh, he continued his interest in American music when Sam Cooke and Roy Orbison and the Shirelles, and he, you know, loved R&B and the Motown era and stuff like that. And uh, he was listening to all these American records and uh, even took a mail train when his parents lived in Germany for a while, when, while his father was still in the RAF, and would go on a mail uh, plane to Germany and then meet up with other kids whose parents were in the military and formed a little skiffle group that they performed on the on the airbase in Germany. Awesome. So, yeah, yeah. So he, yeah. you know, he was working it from... Very young. Uh-huh. Um, and then in 1962, somebody named Brinsley Schwartz uh, arrived at his, his boarding school, and Brinsley would become uh, very... A close uh, a compatriot uh, right. to his, uh, his musical uh, career, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they started a little group. Somebody made him a, made Nick a bass guitar in Woodshop. So he could be in the group and he had to uh, tune it with a pair of pliers, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, You know, was never really uh, into school, but already a ladies man and a show off as he self-describes himself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he left school at age 16 and soon uh, Brinsley Schwartz called him and asked him if he wanted to be in this group that he had started called Kippington Lodge, which was the name of the home that Brinsley Schwartz's parents lived in. Everything has such a like romantic sounding name to us Americans. Yeah, oh, and it's, yes. just, uh, it's just the house I live in. Come over right. to my place, Kippington Lodge. It's like, yes. uh, yeah, my band's called Loma Vista. <laughs> Mine is, mine is 28th Street, so that's not, that doesn't sound that romantic. Mine sounds, mine sounds far more romantic yeah. than yours does. Yeah. So uh, Nick left home in 1968 to go live with Brinsley Schwartz's family and get, um, and become involved in this group, Kippington Lodge, which was very kind of uh, influenced by the band and by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and... Um, and just so you know, Loma means hill. Okay. So so I had to look that up. So that's hill, hill? Hillview. 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 Okay. Hillview. Oh, I've changed the name of the band. It's now Hillview. Hillview Lodge. <laughs> Hillview, Hillview Lodge. Manor. Hillview yes. Manor. So anyway, Kippington Lodge Look, was, I'm looking for humor anywhere I I know. Get. Kippington Lodge was a precursor to the band Brinsley Schwartz, which actually became I would have quite... stuck with Kippington Lodge yes. myself, but... I know. I, I don't know how they came upon that. I mean, I... And, That's and another Brins... interesting question to uh, present yeah, ask, to Will. Why would they do that? Brinsley himself, the man, the boy, mm-hmm. was opposed to that name, but the others thought that was a smashing name. Uh, and... uh, Brinsley, you were correct. Yeah. So, yeah, they started this band called Brinsley Schwartz. Oh, okay. I, I thought we were going to play a Kippington Lodge uh, no, track. I think we don't need to do that. Oh, I, fine. I think... Let's play Brinsley Schwartz. It's the, okay, same, let's it's the same fucking band. Well, pretty much. You know, they, they added some people. And there was Brinsley himself and then, uh, what's you call it, uh, Ian Gom. And Bob Anderson and their drummer's name was Billy Rankin. And they met a fella named Dave Robinson, who we met in Elvis Costello's autobiography. Yeah. Um, And he became their manager. And his company was called the Fame Pushers. 
That's kind of like a, a heady name, isn't it? The Fame the fa- Pushers. Why, well, hey, that pretty much says what the job is. That's right. Right? So, yeah. All right, so let's play a little Brinsley Schwartz. What do you What do you want to play? Well, I would like to play a song that became kind of uh, big later in their, a little bit later in their band life called Surrender to the Rhythm. All right. One of my favorites. Here you go, Surrender to the Rhythm. Well, they dance, they ever true. The band could play At just about midnight well, They decided To call it a day Now there's one thing That's left here On their mind Yeah, yeah, yeah The, the pop rocky thing going there and then um, a little bit of uh, maybe some Jimmy Cliff uh, you know early almost reggae you yeah know, uh, uh, upstroke uh, guitar playing and, and all that so yeah they were definitely uh, soaking up the American influences too and that was one of his compositions oh I this, was, this was say. Nick's Nick's yeah and he was writing Pretty much most of the songs for this band mm-hmm. uh, from the beginning. They, there was some collaboration and others wrote some songs too, but he was showing his, you know, one of the reasons Dave Robinson wanted to sign The them, band Brinsley Schwartz. Right. Right. The band Brimley, Brinsley, Brimley, bleh, Brinsley Schwartz um, was that he saw that saw that Nick was a promising songwriter. Good, yeah. So one of the things that Fame Pushers did fairly early on in 1970 was they um, had this audacious idea to um, have a big hype, you know, for this band, Brinsley Schwartz, to try to get them a record deal. And they decided to book them at the Fillmore East in New York. And Good, good choice. Yeah, and... First, they had to talk, you know, Bill Graham into it. And finally, he said, okay. And then they had to talk an airliner, Aer Lingus, into providing the plane and um, chartering a plane to bring over about a hundred journalists from the UK to come and see this performance at the Fillmore. And this was in April of 1970. Wow, this is really early. Yeah. Okay. And um, this totally backfired on them. I mean, you can read the story in this wonderful book. But what happened was there was all kinds of delays, you know, for the airplane. And the journalists ended up getting like super drunk on the free booze. You know, they used to have free booze on airplanes way back then. And um, yeah, well, that was to, you know, keep the... uh you know, Got to keep, keep, everybody, keep happy. everybody happy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and by the time the everybody got there, uh, a the journalists were not in any shape to really go out to a show and write reviews, and b the the band wasn't actually prepared to you know play such a big a venue of that. Yeah, size, they right. hadn't ever played a venue of that like of that size and that importance, and so it was a colossal an embarrassing failure to which they went home. And um, right after that, they decided that they were not going to engage in any fame pushery things. And they were going to be 
as uh, Will Birch calls them, a symbol for anti-hype. Oh. And so that's kind of how they got into the pub rock thing, which was, you know, just like, yeah, let's just play at some local dives. This American group called Eggs Over Easy had come and started oh, I know this Eggs trend. Over Easy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And just like, you know, like, yeah, we're just here. We're going to have a residency at this pub and people can come and listen to music in their neighborhood and, you know, have it be real mellow and low key, you know, and play all this great American music. They, um, Brinsley Schwartz was into country folk, Van Morrison, The Birds. So they're channeling all these different genres and different bands. And that was one thing that's interesting about the kind of development of Nick Lowe is he took in all of these influences and you know he even talks about it in interviews saying yeah i nicked that part from this person and i stole that part from that person and you know no, made the song yeah, yeah. And, good artist borrow, borrow great artist steal that's right that's mm-hmm. right and as the will uh birch says very few british musicians were so into americana so that was one thing that was Kind of unusual about which Prince was kind of a, it's kind of a new uh, sort of genre. I'm probably most people point to roots rock, Americana, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, kind of point to the band as the genesis of of that. That's right, and the band was one of their just total heroes huh? heroes uh-huh. at that time. In fact, um, you know, about this time they met Dave Edmonds, who was going to also figure very importantly yeah. Yeah. into Nick's career. And they also met a young man named Declan McManus. In Declan McManus. I mm. think I've heard that name before. Yes. Uh, On let's my podcast. see. Uh, I believe there is a name change Glasses. that occurs. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, 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 he probably had a nothing yeah. career. Mr. Elvis Costello. Of course. Who was a fan of the Brinsleys, as we call them now. Mm-hmm. Since we're so familiar with them, uh, he was now only that's a better name. The, the Brinsleys. Brinsleys. The Brinsleys. They should have gone with that. Yes. So he was about seventeen. Or they could have gone with Loma Vista. Oh, Lo- Loma Vista Terrace. <laughs> yeah. The- yes. No, just this Loma Vista. <laughs> well, you can call your next band that. No, I'm sticking that? with my band for a while now. You oh, know? Okay. We're we're very tight knit after the experience that oh, we've been of course, through. So. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so I don't want to delve back into that. No. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, that Declan so, Declan McManus dude. That's right, and he and Nick, you know, are friends to this very day, and they collaborated, as we shall see. Um, I'm going very, to go see very, Declan very McManus closely. here in a couple of days. Oh yes, you are. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. That's very exciting. And, and you have taken Deborah me to Harry. see Declan McManus before. I have. Well, yes, so. at the Masonic. Yeah, yeah, nice. That was awesome. That was a solo show, too. right uh, around the time. Yeah, that was a solo. It was a yeah. cool so, solo show. It was yeah, very, but, very interesting. He told a lot of stories and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that was is, right around uh, the time he wrote his autobiography. Yeah, so yeah, he was yeah. feeling uh, nostalgic. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. In fact, I think he did tell a lot of stories directly from the book. That's right. Uh, yeah. And but this is uh, this is Elvis and the attractions on this one. Yes, the attractions. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Blondie opening. Oh, no. So the, great um, double bill. Not the attractions, the imposters. No, I think this is the attractions. Oh. No, the imposters, because he'll never play with uh, oh. Bruce Thomas again. Okay. That, oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that's the only difference. Okay. All right. So, and then they also, he also met somebody named Jake Riviera, mm-hmm. whose name was actually Andrew Jake. Jakeman. And Jake Riviera has been his longtime manager until just a few years ago. And Jake Riviera... Um, was very important in oh, uh, yes, another I know stage that yeah. of his career. Mm-hmm. So 
the other thing I wanted to mention, though, this is, I mean, we don't hear about Brinsley Schwartz much in you the mean, United you States. Mean the Brinsley. The Brinsleys. But they were so big in those days that they, uh, in they the UK. opened. In the UK. In the UK that they opened for Wings um, mm. on their tour. And, Let's and see, they there got was to, a famous guy in that band, too. That's right. And they got to travel on the bus. What was his name? With Paul Declan McCartney McManus? and his no. family. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. And I even just saw a picture on Facebook of oh, them on nice. the bus with Paul McCartney and Linda and the two little girls. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Nice. So that was really cool. Now, did you know... So one of the last records, Uh-oh. the Brinsleys... Uh, am I on the spot here? Did yeah. you know? Okay, this okay. is a test. One of the last records that the Brinsleys put out was actually produced by Dave Edmonds. And Dave Edmonds became Nick Lowe's kind of Rock producing mentor. Okay. Because uh-huh. Nick was about to get into producing. Right. But before that happened, Nick um, Edmonds produced their album called New Favorites of Brinsley Schwartz, which was their most polished album, which was put out in 74, and it included a very important song, which was What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding? A a great song. Yes, Uh, a great song. One of the, to me, one of the great songs of the 20th century. And you know who wrote that song? I would guess, uh, (laughs) uh, without, so I don't get slapped, Nick Lowe? That's right. (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. You smart cookie. <laughs> well, let's play. Okay. Yeah. So now uh, I do know the Brinsley's version. And yes. Obviously, everyone knows the Declan McManus version. Um, but let's play Let's play the Brinsley yeah. version here and give everybody a feel that may not uh, have heard uh, this. I don't think many people have. So what's so funny about, because it's about, about, peace, love, and understanding. As I walk this wicked world, searching for light in the darkness of insanity. Is our hope gone? Is there only pain, hatred, and misery? Oh yeah, and each time I feel like this inside, there's one thing I wanna know. Oh, so that's a, a different sound for that song, but you know, it's when a, it's, it's well produced. Yes, it, you know, it's all there. It's it's not too. Different from the Elvis Costello version no, it's at got all. The bass line it's, and the yeah, chorus. Yeah, I wouldn't and... say Elvis uh, reinvented the song or, or anything, but I think what we should do is just play the Elvis version, and then we can compare and contrast. Okay. Huh? Can I say one thing about this one? Of that course version, you can. Though? Yes. So this was what Nick says is that this was his first original song that he ever wrote. So all the other songs he had written for Brinsley. Oh, Brinsleys, he nicked the, 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 the stealing from here and stealing from there. He could right. always he could always hear, oh yeah, this is this Yeah, that sounds that like Crosby, Stills gotcha. and Nash, or gotcha. that sounds like the but band. But this was the first and, and completely original. And this was the one, original. like for some reason, this title popped into his head and he went, wait a minute, that's a great title. I have to write a song about this, you know, with that title. And it kind of drew him into writing this song but he it was lighthearted you can tell from his voice it was not not much conviction 
to this song. No, it's, it's a little sung, bit of a it's joke. Sung, it's sung nicely. Yeah. Uh, it's just there. It's yeah. um, There's no uh, emotionalism right. in it. And it's and poking I, a little fun yeah. at the hippies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. All right, let's all get right, to... All right, so there's that. Yeah. And then there's there's this. That's right. First of all, that is way more powerful, uh, the drums themselves. Oh, my God, uh, the drums. I know. Yeah, I was uh, listening to that and, and thinking, it's not just Elvis's voice. It's no, the fucking drums. No, Pete Thomas no. is a monster. Yeah, it's it's that. It is, uh, of course, Elvis's delivery, yeah. which sells the song. It's uh, spit out with far more venom uh, than the Brinsley Schwartz version. Uh, and I think, you know, that is um, emotionally palpable. Uh, and I think uh, anybody on the first listen would, you know, viscerally uh, right. get. Uh, well, you know, the that's message. that's why Elvis's song <laughs> went big, and this one didn't. Right, right. In fact, I think he had, you know, kind of forgotten. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, okay, we did that song. Now that's, you know, on the dust heap of history. So Elvis Costello and the Attractions recorded their version uh, four years later in 1978. Yeah, 78. And, yeah, and yeah. Nick Lowe produced the album um Elvis's armed forces, armed forces. Right, right yeah and so you know it was a partnership of making this song to be a really big hit yeah. and that's not the end of what we're going to hear about this song so oh more to come stay in your seats more to come. people yeah, yeah. but uh, again uh, <laughs> Uh, an incredible song, uh, and then performed by um, the incredible Elvis Costello. That's right. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let's get back to Nick. All right. Well, so moving um, on. Moving on. Well, one one thing I forgot to mention is well, Brinsley Schwartz were you know making all these records and playing pub rock and stuff. They lived communally in a in a house um, in the country, much like the band. Their mentors had lived at Big Pink. Yep. And. Um, the in the summer of 1974, the band actually visited them. Um, they came to the UK to 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 do a tour, and somebody from Warner Brothers called to ask if the band could come to their to the Brinsleys' house and use their barn as a rehearsal space for their tour. And wow. the guys, of course, were thought that was just a total joke because it's like, you know, come on, the band, really? they're like gods, you yeah. know, they're not coming to our place. And they did. And the, and the Brinsleys kind of stayed out of their way and, you know, let them use some of their equipment. And it was a real thrill and treat for them. But I don't think they had too much uh, interaction. It was just kind of like, oh, my God, the band is here yeah, and they're, yeah. they're using my amp. Wow, you know, that's great. Kind of thing, yeah. So that must have been oh oh yeah prior prior to them breaking up after the last waltz. Okay, right. So right. mid mid seventies, yeah. Yeah, okay. like seventy four, right. seventy five. No. Um, yeah, and then you know around that time in seventy five, the band started winding down, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Nick himself 
admits, you know, that he didn't leave the group in a very um, positive way, but he, you know, just felt like it was time to get out. And Jake tried to get Nick out um, from his contract with United Artists by writing this really silly song, um, Bay City Rollers, We Love You. You guys, you guys can look it up on YouTube. Um, and, uh, you know, like, actually... You mean like all the other teenage girls? Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is I saw an interview with him uh, kind of later in his life uh, talking about that, like... I, I I wrote it to you know for it to be really awful and get me out of this contract. But uh, you know, I'm best kind laid of, pant plans of mice I and know. men. He says I'm kind of proud of how awful it really was mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was so well done in the teeny bopper style that it actually became a minor hit, especially in Japan. So um, they had to actually do a follow up re- uh, record, which was called "Let's Go to the Disco." <laughs> Anyway, what but what Jake Riviera and Nick saw from this uh, foray into pop music was that they had some power to do something new, and that people were looking at them as kind of becoming the tastemakers uh-huh. of that time period, mm-hmm. and so they actually uh, started looking for yeah, uh, and other, started other like looking for other could, artists yeah, they, they had um mm-hmm. one named graham parker who is awesome yeah we know graham parker oh yeah i always loved graham parker mm-hmm. and um he had a, a an album that they had started to record but then whoever was producing it was doing a lousy job and they pulled nick in and said can you just whip this into shape and somehow, within a week, he whipped the album into shape, and they and well, they put that out. And that was his kind of credits, first uh, being experience put together, right? Producing, yeah. And then he went to the west coast of United States um, with Doctor Feelgood on a tour, and kind of was playing around with this idea of, of finding an independent label to record him, Nick. And, and then Nick and Jake from that visit decided, hey, wait a minute, why don't we make our own independent record label? And that record label became the record label called Stiff. Mm. And big, that's big kind of when it uh, all, you know, label, really right. came together for Nick as mm-hmm. a solo artist and then pushed him into the future. Stiff Records, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the first record that came out on Stiff was Nick's solo um, effort recording called So It Goes. So let's listen to So It Goes. This the was song, So Nick It Goes. Nick Lowe, mm-hmm. So It Goes, with a, a panoply of uh, musicians backing him, including himself. Here you go. So It Goes. Oh, I'm sorry. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. (laughs) 
Not uh, our I best remember that effort. song. I remember that song. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it a kinda, great fucking song. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it, it kind of, uh, I don't know, it kind of had a little Todd Rundgren feel to it in some ways. I don't and, know, but there's some. And then maybe that. a little Thin Lizzy I thought of while I was listening to it. But uh, but yeah, yeah, fun, fun, uh, fun song. Yeah, they did the, recorded that in two or three takes. That's the way it was done. It's stiff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like Assembly his line. production moniker went bash it down and, <laughs> and tart it up, up later. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one one theory about how he got his nickname the Basher. Ah. Bash it down. Right. Yeah. Right. And so this launched his solo career after the Brinsley Schwartz uh, experience. And give him producing credits. That's to, right. To so n- he, a known out in the world of London. That's and right. Beyond, and right? he became kind of big cheese. Yeah. Uh, in a, uh, he handled the music and the producing. And um, they had a graphic designer named Barney Bubbles who did all their... Um, their album covers that were really cool. And then Dave Robinson was still hanging around and had a site. So Dave Robinson and Jake Riviera were the kind of two businessmen behind uh, Stiff Records. Um, And, you know, as we remember from Elvis Costello's autobiography, he came with his, his little tapes that he'd been recording. Remember, he worked at Elizabeth yep. Arden or something like that. Mm-hmm. Some, and uh, brought them to Stiff, and so you know he became one of the Stiff artists as well. Mm-hmm. So the one of the first albums or songs that he produced for Stiff was the Dams oh, yeah. record New mm-hmm. Rose, yeah. which came to be known as the first British punk rock single released ahead of Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols. Yeah, definitely the Dam was the first uh, punk rock band to tour the United States mm-hmm. uh, from Britain. And uh, this song is, 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 you know, a great... Uh, example of uh, what was happening in the uh, the English underground uh, at the time. Let's listen to it. Oh, sure. Let's listen to it. Yes. <laughs> New Rose. Is she really going out with him? It's got that uh, rat-a-tat-tat English punky sound to it. Yeah, it got some interesting chord changes and, you know, like, you know, progression and stuff like that. I like Fast paced. I like that one. Right. I like it. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Um, So the next uh, kind of big... Big thing that happened in uh, Nick's career yes, was tell he, us about the big thing. The big thing was, um, you know, getting together with Dave Edmonds oh, and starting a, brand, a band called Rockpile. 
uh, along with Terry Williams, great drummer, yep. and Billy Bremner, great guitar player and great singer. And they became a band for uh, about four years and, you know, just kind of blew the socks off in the uh, performing sector. Oh, that wasn't right. That's not yeah, the right that word. Sounded that sounded really... I know. It sounds uh, like a librarian it, or oh something. Oh, my God. That's sector. exactly what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, that was, that was bad. Okay, and I, what, re- uh, I think I should retire. Yes. Uh, What's what Dewey Decimal number is that? I can amazing. Okay, in the Dewey Decimal system, that would be the seven hundreds. Okay. Anyway, they were incredible performers. Like people still talk about them as the greatest rock band on stage. You know, anyway. rock pile. Oh yeah, yeah. rock pile, rock mm-hmm. pile. Yeah, um, which was never really able to capture the uh, energy and uh, excitement of the band uh, on right. record. Yeah, in fact, um, because Dave and Nick were signed to different labels and had contracts with different labels, they couldn't actually do a record under the name Rockpile. So, for example, when they went out on tour that um, in 1977, they went out as Dave Edmonds' Rockpile. And later on, when Nick had a solo record out, they went on as Nick low and rock pile so they had to do that for a while Mm -hmm. um and but it was a great combo they had you know the traditional rock and roll r&b and um you know dave edmonds is like a a total traditionalist as far as rockabilly and uh american rock and roll goes and um, and in the meantime, Nick is still writing his own material and still recording over over many many months with different musicians. Um, and his album, his first solo album, came out in 1978, and it was called Jesus of Cool, <laughs> which you might not remember if you're an American because America would not let that album come out as Jesus of Cool because we're so weird about religion, especially Christianity. Um, So in the United States, it came out as pure pop for now people, which is how I remember it coming out in 1978. Yeah, I'm not sure if Jesus, uh, what was it, Jesus? Jesus of Cool. Of Cool would go over really well in in certain sections of the country. No, probably not. So the single from that record was I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass. Uh-huh. And um, basically, Nick wrote the tune. And as he says later, you know, it's not really a very good song. It was, But it's a good record because I brought it in and the piano player and the bass player and Nick on uh, rhythm guitar and singing just like added their own touches to the record. So he included them on the credits for the, the writing credits for the record. And they were Andrew Bodnar and Steve Goulding. Anyway, yeah, that was, uh, the album was known as a masterpiece of contemporary pop. I yeah. totally love it. It's mm-hmm. great. And Jake Riviera thought it was awesome to have two, um, two titles for the same album because it's like a good story for the press. Sorry, too hot to handle. You know, like this album is so hot that it had to have two titles instead of just one. Of course. Yeah. Let's listen to I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass. I Love the Sound of... Oh, yeah, that's a great song. I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass. I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass Especially when I'm lonely 
Just uh, we, we listened to that, but then I went back and it reminded me of, uh, of David Bowie. And, mm-hmm. of course, he has a song called Breaking Glass from his album, Low. Yes. And do you know that Nick then put out an EP called Bowie in response? <laughs> so so okay. Bowie's al- album was called Low, L-O-W, and Nick Lowe's name is L-O-W-E. Yes. So, so he put out an EP called Bowie, B-O-W-I which had like four songs on it or something. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, there, I, I'm sure, he, he I'm sure David play those was listening. Little jokes. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm sure David was listening to Nick Lowe. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I don't think there was no, you know, uh, ill will no. meant. It was just oh, of course not. Nick is a hysterically funny person. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And um, yeah, in the meantime, uh, while this album is coming out, which is his solo album, so when this album came out, like I said, Rockpile ran on the road uh, backing Nick, but it was basically yeah. the same show as they always did. Yeah, like they just had they to just call it, it Nick, Nick Lowe, Lowe and, and they, they played all these songs. And um, they were so loved on the concert circuit that, for example, one of the first U.S. tours they went on was backing Badfinger, and Badfinger started um, cutting back their time because people loved, oh, Badfinger, Bad Company. Oh. What's a Badfinger? Yeah, that, I think Badfinger was... Uh, no, no, movie? that's a band. No, oh, okay, no, Badfinger. No, they were signed Bad to... Bad Company, uh, to, uh, Paul McCartney's yeah, um, yeah, uh, band. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, they started cutting back their time. This was, I think, pretty common, actually. <laughs> like the headliner would become irritated because people loved listening to rock pile so much that when they left the stage and the headliner came on, people were kind of like, oh, it's you. you know? <laughs> so they would kind of <laughs> Not cut back their time. Like, the oh, you only get a half hour yeah. instead of 45 yeah. minutes or an hour. But that I'm even sure that made... just pissed off people even yeah, more. Yeah, that right? pissed off people. And it made, meant that Rockpile had to do all of their, only their best songs. And uh-huh. so they were just wickedly good. And oh, it's kind of out of order from what I was going to do. But since I'm talking about this... Um, I thought we could play uh, Switchboard Switchboard Susan, Susan, which is a song that Nick wrote that they did um, in concert around this time, Rock Pile. And let's do the live. And we'll show you the energy. Yeah, we'll do the live version. Yeah. So, uh, okay. All right. So, Switchboard Susan live. Switchboard Susan, won't you give me a line?
And there's a, a great line in this uh, uh, song that he always smirks when he sings, which is, uh, I got an extension, and I don't mean the Graham Bell invention. <laughs> you know, so anyway, yeah. Oh, what's he talking about there? I don't know. Oh, I yeah, don't know. So you don't want to yeah. delve into that. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. You guys know. Anyway, uh, let's see. Oh, so I wanted to just backtrack a tiny bit. Um, remember when Elvis Costello went on Saturday Night Live? Oh, yeah. And um, they were supposed to, they wanted to play Radio Radio, radio, radio. Yeah. but the network didn't want them to do it. But they basically started playing something else. And, and then, he stops them. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then Elvis goes, stop. And yeah. then they launch into radio, radio. Well, Saw Nick, was, live. Nick yep. was there um, at that recording, at that... Um, uh, oh, uh, in at, the studio. At the okay. airing, uh-huh. yeah. And um, he said, um, we got a lot of pleasure about out of messing it up. And they squirmed like mad and went back to the hotel. And he wrote American Squirm, <laughs> which I always wondered what that was about. But it was written in response to the Americans just going crazy because... Elvis Costello broke out and sang the song about the radio industry and the capitalist pigs that were running it. Well, let's play. Yeah, it's really uh, good. American Squirm. I made an American Squirm And it felt so right On screen was a musical worm Deep, deep into the night the way that's Elvis Costello singing backup vocals no on surprise uh, yeah in that. yeah it and, sounds and, great you, you can really recognize his voice yeah the, the, you can kind of begin to see the shading of uh, what Elvis is doing and what Nick's doing you can kind of hear the uh, beginnings of something like cruel to be kind uh-huh right right um actually some of these songs came out on um Nick's solo album that came out that basically a rock pile album called labor of lust mm-hmm. around that time yeah that's a great which album. i love yeah. that album. That's a great uh, album yeah and that title too and you know around this time um our our lovely heroine carlene carter enters the stage and um, she was oh uh, Johnny Carson. I, I excuse me, Johnny Cash Johnny is uh, Johnny Carson. Johnny Cash is <laughs> that's right uh, stepdaughter. Stepdaughter, yeah, yeah. Yes, and she's June Carter's daughter and Johnny Cash's stepdaughter. And she came to England to you know she was from this legendary um, country music family, the Carter girls and and um, oh the Carter family. Yeah, which the started Carter in, family. Uh, I think the- 40s if i remember right but and she you know she was a, a hip with it girl and she wanted to do something a little you know she's trying to break out right, of the family yeah, business mold, right now right, of course right. she's firmly ensconced back into it and has yeah. really um putting out some beautiful music still but she wanted to do something a little more edgy and she go to came, england pardon me go to england yep yeah. she went to england and uh found dave edmonds and wanted him to produce her album and met nick and they fell in love 
and they got married shortly thereafter. So um, this kind of starts his uh, relationship with the Carter Cash family, which plays big in his career um, upcoming. Um, of course, we've kind of skimmed over this part where Nick is producing Elvis Costello and the Attractions' first two or three, two albums. And around this time, they um, they start to record and he produces um, what we already talked about, Armed Forces, which the song Oliver's Army is on. Now, the, the interesting thing about that song is that they started recording it and all of the attractions decided that they didn't really like it and they wanted to kick it off the album. And Nick said, oh, I really like that backing track. I'm going to buy the backing track from you. Uh, I'm going to put it out uh, as my own song uh, and I'm going to sing it. uh, What? Yeah. And uh, as soon as he said that... That's like one of my favorite Elvis Costello songs. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine, but it didn't have the special sauce on it yet. This is why. Because Nick saying he wanted to buy the backing track prompted Steve Naive to go, wait, what the fuck? I want that song back. And he went and added his crazy, interesting piano part to it, which really adds to the song. And they decided to keep it. So let's play Oliver's Army. I, I absolutely love that song. And but there's so much piano on that song. Yeah, you can imagine uh, yeah. how Steve like naive. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wonder what it was like without the piano on it. Maybe oh, we yeah. would have kicked it out of bed too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, a, it's like a, a, a sometimes like a Stone song with that Nicky Hopkins on it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So speaking of the Stones, I have an oh. interesting story. Uh huh. Okay, I was just listening. Which again, I will see in the next few days. Yeah, that's right. You're seeing everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, it was interesting as I was just, I just listened to this, um, Nick tell this story on a recording on YouTube yesterday. It's hysterical and you can find it by YouTube searching rock pile and Keith Richards bottom line. So what happened was they rock pile went on a tour, um, with Van Morrison and they were in New York and they had this kind of residency at the bottom line. So when they weren't playing with, with Van Morrison, they would play at, at New York's the bottom line. And, uh, one time they were playing and they heard that Keith Richards was coming right, right on the tail of his, um, drug bust in Canada, Toronto. Yeah, uh-huh. and he was uh, given, I guess, a uh, commuted sentence or parole or something like that. He had to do a concert. And he came directly to New York, though, from that ordeal to see Rockpile play at the bottom line. Nice. And they were so, like, astounded. No, he's not really coming to see us. Oh, yes, he is. 
he came backstage and they knew he'd just been busted, you know, released from a drug charge. And so they tried like, okay, it wouldn't be cool to like, like have drugs out when Keith is here because he's on the straight and narrow now, of course, right. and we're going to, you know, help him, you know, and enable him to, to stay straight and uh, not get in any more trouble. I doubt that's why he was coming, but sure, go ahead with your yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as Nick tells it, there's like two dressing rooms and there's this little um, kind of ante room in the middle of the two dressing rooms, which is basically a broom closet. And Keith Richards, um, you know, invites Nick into the broom closet and opens, as he says, a large bottle of some substance. And it's basically what I can, what I imagine is cocaine, because it's some powdery thing. And it's not just a tiny vial. It's a uh, large I, bottle, I, I, I a large Nick, bottle. Uh... And starts, you know, you, you, know, you want to do a little, a, a little blow here, man. I just, <laughs> I, I just got released from Toronto, and That's I right. need to, I need a friend. Okay, can you be my friend just for a few minutes? That's right. And and they were they were negotiating, you know, like how uh, Nick said, oh, you know, you want to play some songs with us? Uh, you know, that would be really cool. And and everybody oh, in the no, audience. Oh no, no, I'm late. I'm late to. Um, too wasted for that but maybe next time i <laughs> know he was all for it and everybody in the oh, audience wow. was just like electrified they knew keith richards was there somehow and they were all waiting for him to come out but <laughs> nick says like in the interim between them kind of deciding uh, mate, mate uh, just <laughs> there was a large it was a large bottle of keith, co- keith co- i'm trying it, to tell no. a story here it's it's a large bottle of cocaine. Yeah, and a large bottle. I, yeah. I, I just done too much. <laughs> By the time they had negotiated like what they were going to do, he said Keith Richards just like, had By been way, reasonable. That's my, that is my Johnny Depp uh, impersonation. Impersonation. From You're Pirates, Pirates of, of the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. Okay. Of, All right. Of, of Keith Richards. All right. It's somewhat, it's a second generation uh, uh, interpretation of Keith Richards. Okay. So anyway, so Keith is like, yeah, 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 sure. I want to play with you guys. And and then by the time he got out of the broom closet, though, he was legless, apparently, closet. with with being so fucked up from whatever he'd been doing. And it, he like apparently Dave Edmonds, it's like since he he was playing music at the same time, the Rolling Stones were coming up. And oh, so yeah. he knew, you know, Keith Richards from the time he wasn't so important. And he had this kind of, you know, uh <laughs> This kind of uh, view of Keith Richards, like he thinks he's so great, but he doesn't really know Chuck Berry the way I do. And, <laughs> and you know, he doesn't really know how to do the monkey beat on the, the guitar. And, oh, and it, some of that is exposed in Hail, Hail Rock and Roll. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. He, uh, yeah. So, so Dave is not real impressed with Keith Richards and says, well, okay. Oh, if now, he... wait a minute. Okay. I can get that, but fuck that. Look at that career. Oh, yeah, of course. But on this particular night, let me tell you, (laughs) Dave Edmonds was proven correct because when they saw that Keith Richards was so wasted, they they were like, he's never going to make it to the end of the show. You know, he's going to be like laid out flat by the end of the show. So we have to put him on first. Right, because we got to make sure we get something out of him. So even though, like he and uh, Dave oh, Edmonds are let me, arguing about, let me, let me about... just go back to the broom closet for a minute. I'll be okay. <laughs> no, he wasn't okay at all. 
So they, you know, they played um, Chuck Berry's Let It Rock. Ah. And he thought that his, the big amp that Nick was playing out of, his bass out of, was his amp. And so Nick is like playing the bass and realize like something weird is happening to my sound. And he looks over and Keith Richards is twiddling with the knobs on Nick's bass and making it go all kind of funny and trebly and bassy and fading in and out because he's so like out of it, Keith, that he doesn't understand like which amp his guitar is plugged into. And so that's what uh, guitar. And then they couldn't get him off the stage. They're like, okay, thank you, Keith. You know, and Keith is still standing there. And so finally, Dave, he he like tried to play through one of their um, songs, but didn't know it at all. And Dave looks over at the roadie and says, Des, get this cunt off the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Can hear it on the recording, apparently. So anyway, that was um, Keith Richards' unsuccessful tour with rock pile uh, it was pretty much the, the the end of him being a mess uh, the toronto thing kind of changes uh his direction it takes a little bit but uh but that's, well, maybe that's it the was the that. rock pile gig that did that Christian. <laughs> <laughs> he went oh lordy i screwed up that um, uh, thing at the bottom I, line i don't ever want to go into dave edmonds was mad game. at me it must have been something <laughs> i did yeah i better stay off the sauce <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, yeah, you know, Nick produced so many acts at that time that became big. He was uh, the producer of Chrissy Hines and the Pretenders' first single, Stop Your Sobbing. Mm -hmm. That's Um, the first single? So so it's not the album, uh, Pretenders, but uh, just the single, Stop Your Sobbing. Right. Okay. Right, yeah. Because um, apparently, I remember from her um, memoir that James Honeyman Scott, they were wooing him to be in the in the band. Uh-huh. And um, he was a big Nick Lowe fan. And when she told him, oh, Nick, Nick is going to, because she was friends with him, Nick, she said, Nick is going to produce our first single. He That was one of the things that got him into the Pretenders. Well, let's play a little of Stop Your Sobbing, uh, which was produced by Nick Lowe. It is time for you to stop all of your sobbing. Yes, it's time for you to stop all of your sobbing. Oh, oh. There's one thing you gotta do to make me still want you. Gotta stop sobbing now, gotta stop sobbing now. That, that was nice, uh, listening to the Pretenders. So he produced uh, that single uh, yeah. uh, off that. You know, it's funny, last night at the uh, Candlelight Vigil in Gilroy, the uh, um, the anthem was I'll Stand By You, uh, Pretenders. Uh, yeah, song, that's so. a lovely song. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, again, uh, not to keep throwing this in there, but um, it's on my mind. Yeah. Um, uh, so, all right, come on. Let's, let's Nick yeah. Lowe. Yep, yep. So Chrissy says that Nick was a catalyst for the Pretender's success. So that's mm-hmm. very important to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to get to the song that uh, this book is named after, <laughs> Cruel to be Kind. And his most famous song. That's right. Mm-hmm. And it was released in 1979, but it was written during the Brinsley Schwartz era. 
And um, the A&R guy, Greg Geller at Columbia, insisted it go on his solo album, Labor of Lust. Um, and Nick was a little embarrassed because he'd written it so long ago and he'd gone in a different direction. But, you know, somehow Edmonds, Dave Edmonds, as he said, grabbed it by the throat and they got the harmonies going and it came out great. And it's still something that Nick plays um, solo to this to this day. I've, I just saw him last year at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass and they did this song. So it's a good song. It's a solid song. And as he said, it's still my calling card. Oh, it's more than a yeah. good, solid song. It's a, it's a great song. It's a so great pop song. Let's play Cruel yeah. to be Kind. Let's hear it. is a great pop song. Why did he not write hundreds of those? You know, I have my theory, and um, I think that he knew how to write a great pop song, but he didn't always like hits. You know, like, when, if he saw what he would need to do to make a hit, it's like, he would kind of subvert it in a way. Like, I need to put my own individual stamp on this and kind of change it in some way that makes it different and then you know kind of ironic or or uh humorous or kind of kind of subversive in a way um I don't know yeah that's my that's my theory that it's like he really he wanted to write a pop song and he wanted to be famous but he didn't want all the things that came along with being famous and he didn't necessarily like what the massive public liked you know he had to he had to make what he liked so you know that's kind of what happened there but but this song uh you know i talked about carlene carter uh if you look up this song on youtube you will see the official youtube video of cruel to be kind it has scenes from their marriage ceremony um embedded in the youtube video the official youtube video or the official video of cruel to be kind wow, so, which was shown on well no mtv it was broadcast by mtv on its launch day in 1981 oh wow yeah this song yes and speaking of carlene you know he had these awesome in-laws june and Johnny, carter june, and johnny, june carter june and johnny, and johnny. Cash, right and yeah. they would come and visit uh, Nick and Carlene in London and where, like where their diamond she wore her diamond rings and he had his long black coat and they would go walking around the neighborhood and not you know with no airs but still being them they're kind of bigger than life June and Johnny oh god yeah yeah and um, during that time actually uh, he started writing a, a song that Johnny later covered but we'll get to that later so 
Rockpile only put out one album under the name Rockpile. It was called Seconds of Pleasure in 1980. And uh, Will and I both agree that one of the best songs off this album is Now and Always, which even though it wasn't the single or the biggest... Uh, yeah, like Teacher, Teacher. Yeah, the, wasn't the, the, the biggest big song, song or, off the yeah. album, but it, as as uh, Will Birch says, it rivals Buddy Holly for grace and simplicity. And it showcases the lovely harmonies that uh, Nick and Dave and also Billy um, did together. Well, let's play a little of Now and Always. I can I can hear the uh, Buddy Holly influence there, but I can also hear Proto Squeeze. Proto Squeeze. Yeah. Oh, interesting. You should say that. <laughs> uh oh, something's coming up. Well, one one of the people that he uh, collaborated with over the next few years was Paul Carrick, who mm-hmm. was yep. in Squeeze. Yeah, that's right. And had a, has a beautiful voice and plays you know keyboards really well and Paul Carrick became part of his band which they called um well at first they called the CC Riders because they backed Carlene but then uh it was the oh noise to go it was called uh Martin Belmont Bobby Irwin the drummer who was um Nick's longtime friend and collaborator and they were featured on the next couple of um, solo albums that Nick did because Rockpile broke up yeah. uh, shortly after that. And it was mostly, it sounds like, because Dave and Jake Riviera had um, a personal kind of clash and Nick just kind of bailed on that band as well. Mm. So, you know, he did uh, several solo albums after that, um, Nick the Knife and uh, The Abominable Snowman. No, showman. <laughs> I'm Get sorry. Get that the right. The abominable showman. Right. And Rose of England and uh, Nick Lowe and his cowboy outfit. Those were some of the, the albums that came out, which when Nick looks back on them, he kind of uh, dismisses them and not being his best work. But there were certainly some really good um albums that came out of um songs that came out of those albums. I I delved back and I quite enjoy a lot of the songs on those albums. But one of the important things that happens during that time is he meets John Hyatt and he was hired to produce one of John Hyatt's albums and John Hyatt, a famous, I mean, not so famous, maybe, maybe all of you don't know about him, Uh but he's a wonderful singer songwriter, kind of independent guy. And, um, and they, they kind of got together and, with Ry Cooter and did some, uh, and and 
were on the album writing John Hyatt's album, Riding with the King, there's a song that comes out of that, Riding with the King, which B.B. Um, King also recorded. So anyway, that's a lot of a lot of a um, lot of info information. Right in a short yeah, I know you're going to follow like this thread yeah. and you kind of like can't stop. But Nick was drinking quite a lot during this time. And in fact, you can tell this was one of the questions I had from uh, kind of obsessively looking at Nick Lowe YouTube videos was like in 1983, he seemed almost like bloated and and you could tell he was like totally wasted on stage when he was performing with John Hyatt. And then a, like a year or so later, he's like super skinny and just like really, really sober. And it turns out that um, during this time, he realized that he was drinking so much that you know it was really killing him basically he was quite ill Mm -hmm. as he says Mm -hmm. on many um interviews and so he quit drinking cold turkey in 1983 so the next album that came out um which was uh, nick lowe and his cowboy outfit was half of it was written and recorded when he was totally drunk and half of it was written and recorded when he was sober so it's kind of a schizophrenic album but well, um, well exemplified in the boy, half a boy and half a man, because that's kind of a, a schizophrenic title, half a boy and half a man. That's a song. Did I say the boy? I can't remember what I said. Yeah, anyway, half a boy, half, half a man. Half a boy and half a man. Yeah. So that's one of his best known songs, and he still does it in performance today. And um, yeah, it's a cool song. I let's, like it. Let's play it. Half okay. a boy and half a man. Okay, I mean, um, you know, I can hear that music hall, you know, English tradition sort of thing uh, yeah. with that song. It's kind uh, of a Zydeco, like a, a yeah. I see a like yeah, a, New Orleans Zydeco yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, I, I think can hear it that. shows like his. He was really, he still is the world very music interested in, 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 in American. Yeah, music. trying to find things going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, after after that, you know, like I said, he began to lose the taste for writing and producing commercial sounding songs, but he couldn't find anybody who wanted to to do something different with him. And he had this kind of gnawing feeling for a few years that he wanted, he, you know, he knew that he was getting old, that he wasn't really going to be a older, I should say, in his 30s. He wasn't going to be a pop star. He wasn't going to really, you know, take hold of the charts. And he just wanted to make music the way he wanted to make music. And um, but he couldn't kind of get people to to engage with him who wanted to do that. He wanted the drums to be 
more subdued, the vocal to be live, and the mistakes left in. And so the first album he did that showed that he was trying, that this is what he was trying to do, was called Pinker and Prouder Than Previous, which is a very strange album title, I must say. Um, That was in 1986, and it broke all the rules of 1980s pop recording. I mean, he wasn't trying to make pop records anymore. He was trying to make records that he liked, and he was putting a lot of work into making them sound underproduced. So my favorite song on this album is Crying in My Sleep, and you'll see the difference between the one that we just heard, which was quite produced, and this one, which um, shows kind of where he was trying to go, but he was kind of limping along trying to do this. Okay, all right, let's, let's play Crying in My Sleep. Last night I saw you on the street With a beefy hanger on Slow walking upon your beat You were made up, girl Choked up by rage and grief I stole up to you and I drew my steel One flash bring fast relief Then I woke up I was crying in my sleep Crying in my sleep There are tears on So, uh, one of the reasons I like that song is it's clearly kind of a revenge song on somebody who just broke up with him. He's having these nightmares. Oh, it of, sounds like a country song to me. Well, he's having these nightmares of like this kind of killing this mm-hmm. woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like you were out in the desert and you needed water and I poured it in the sand, you know. And yeah. then I woke up and I was crying in my sleep because... You know, I realized I really loved you and you left me, you bitch. You know, that kind of thing. So it's kind of, it's a, it's very, um, I don't know, it just kind of grabbed me. Um, so what happened um, after that is the kind of one of the turning points is that in 1987, he got a phone call from John Hyatt asking if he would play bass on um, his record that he was producing and that Rye Cooter and Jim Keltner were both going to be playing. And he was like, no, I haven't played, you know, I just, I quit drinking and I haven't played the bass in a while and I don't really, I can't do it today. John Hyatt went and wanted him to go right away. Like, I have the place rented. I'm in Los Angeles. Come from London and play with me. And he went and he realized that uh, he and Rye Cooter and John Hyatt and and actually Jim Keltner, you know, they understood what he wanted to do. They wanted to record uh, real music and, you know, have it be kind of affecting and and play in real time and have the, the vocals be live and not overwhelm it with some banging drums. That was kind of his his vision. And so right after that, um, he kind of went on his way to try to make this happen for himself and find other people that wanted him to do this with him. And he also decided that it was too expensive to go 
touring with the band all the time because he'd have to pay all these people and that he decided to try to work up an act of him as a solo artist with an acoustic guitar which is what he started to do at that time and he's still doing now and people love you know when he does that because he's a great rhythm guitar player and a great singer and a great songwriter so that started his solo career mm-hmm. and he did an album that Dave Edmonds produced in 1988 called Party of One which I just love so you all should go out and listen to that album and but the big break for him came when his song I told you we were going to talk about this again what's so funny about peace love and understanding Performed by Curtis Stigers, who I don't think many people have probably heard of, but he um, he sang this song on the soundtrack of Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard. Oh, Remember huge that film. with Kevin yep. Costner? Yep. Yep. And, and that came out in 1992, and it was the biggest selling movie soundtrack of all time. Yep. So Nick got some money from that. I and bet. Now he could finance his own recordings and work slowly the way he wanted to. So this was a big break for him in actually doing what he wanted to do. He wasn't beholden to anyone. He had money. He could make the records he wanted to make. And he could uh, get the people that he wanted to on those records. And one of the the first record he put out uh, during that time, and this was kind of the beginning of his reinvention and his reincarnation as a different kind of musician, was called The Impossible Bird. And this is an amazing album. This is one of the ones that I came to after I... Uh, listen to you know pure pop for now people or Jesus of cool and then I skipped ahead to the impossible bird and went oh my god there's so many great songs on this record and there a lot of them are about being um being broken up with but you know that's one of the reasons they're so um kind of sit in your heart the way they do and the one of the songs on that album is the beast in me now, this is a song that he started writing when Johnny and June were his um, in-laws, and he came downstairs after a drunken night of starting to write this this song and played it for Johnny Cash and was really embarrassed because he was all hungover. And, you know, this was in the um, late, eight, late 70s, early 80s, somewhere around there. And for 10 years, Johnny Cash kept getting back to him saying, have you finished that song yet? Have you finished that song? Because I want to sing that song. And finally, in 19, like 92 or so, he finished the song. And he, he recorded this demo that we're going to listen to now and sent it to Johnny Cash. And then Johnny Cash did his own version of it shortly thereafter. So let's listen to both of them. Yeah, let's versions. let's we'll do we'll do a little of the Beast in Me by Nick Lowe, and then we will fade into the Johnny Cash version. The Beast in Me is caged by frail and fragile bars, restless by day and by night, rants and rages at the stars. God help the beast in me 
beast in me has had to learn to live with pain and how to shelter from the rain and in the twinkling of an eye the beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bars restless by day and by night rants and rages at the stars god help the beast in me Well, that must be pretty nice having Johnny Cash do one of your songs. That's right. And then bugging the shit out of you to finish it so that he can do it. That's right. And he he wrote that specifically for Johnny Cash, but I think he does a lovely job with it himself. Uh, Yeah. And that's not the only song of Nick's that Johnny Cash covered. He covered another one called Without Love earlier on. So... You know, he always loved, I think Johnny Cash loved his ex-son-in-laws. <laughs> he had many <laughs> with uh, Roseanne. You know, he had quite a, a few daughters that got yeah. married several times. So yeah. anyway, um, I like this quote from his manager, Jake Riviera, who described him as the least hardworking man in show business. <laughs> because at this point, you know, like I said, he had the money to do it the way he wanted to. He, he could have been a big giant star and he never translated over. But I think it's more because of how he crafted his career. That's right. And he, at this point, was doing a new album about once every four years. So he's not trying to stay on top. He's not trying to, you know, woo uh, new audiences. But um, with this new material, actually, he sees um, a lot more women and young people coming to his shows because you know, they're more sensitive. The songs are sensitive. And it's not just like hard driving rock and roll or, you know, kind of masculine pop. It's, uh, you know, it's it's music and songs that everybody can relate to. Songs that Shelley would love. That's right. Songs that Shelley. And I mean, I got to say at some point that one of the reasons that I love Nick Lowe as a musician is that a few years ago I was having a really depressing time being a mother. Well, I still am, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I started thinking like, what, this is not, you know, my boys were teenagers and they were shunning me and all that stuff. Um, and I just kind of went in my room and started picking up the guitar and learning songs. And Nick Lowe's songs were my basic, you know, where I went to find songs that I could learn Mm -hmm. and that that meant something to me and that I could sing. I mean, I could transpose them and I could sing them and I could learn how to play. And I spent a lot of time with his music. So, you know, I really feel like I have a connection. I'm sure he doesn't share, but, you know, I have a connection to him that he doesn't have with me, but that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> oh, maybe he'll listen to this and uh, reach out. Possibly. I doubt it. But anyway, you know, I just want to say this one thing that really helped me, you know, actually 
connect with that I wanted to be a musician and that it wasn't too late for me and that old people could do this kind of thing. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, he had uh, three albums that are considered a trilogy. This one, The Impossible Bird, Dig My Mood, and then one in 2001 called The Convincer. And he wrote uh, a song called Lately I've Let Things Slide, which he calls painfully autobiographical. Because they're about, you know, he's had this battle with, uh, with booze and substances, as many people have throughout his life. And he, he sees this song as being something that kind of exemplifies what he was going through. And this is around the time that he met his current wife in 2001, who is a graphic designer. Her name is Peta Waddington. And she kind of uh, proposed that she could work on the album sleeve for this album, which is called The Convincer. And that's how they got together. Great. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's listen to the mature Nick Lowe, the least working man in show business. <laughs> Lately, I've let things slide. With a growing sense of dread and a hammer in my head, fully clothed upon the bed. I wake up to the world that lately I've been living in There's a cut upon my brow, must have banged myself somehow But I can't remember now And the front door's open wide, lately I've let things slide Well, I can hear some of Johnny Cash rubbing off on Nick Lowe there. Maybe, maybe even a little Marty Robbins. It's a very uh, country sounding. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, he's done a few albums since then in his slow pace. You know, one every three or four years. And, um, you know, like I said, he performs solo at many events and small venues. And he's come out to Hardly Strictly Bluegrass in San Francisco every couple years. And I've seen him there. And he did um, in, nine, in 2013 a Christmas album, which, of course, he was like... Uh, that was proposed to him by uh, no, Yep Rock. Everybody's got to do a Christmas yeah, album but he, one you know, way or another. It's not an English thing. Yeah. He said that seems very tacky, but then he decided to do it and um, actually teamed up with Ry Cooter for one of the songs. Um, and now he's out on the road uh, playing with a band called Los Straightjackets. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of them, but they're Los a really fun kind of guitar surfer guitar band mm-hmm. and they wear mexican wrestling masks oh so it's a kind of an interesting um you know including uh, nick collaboration yeah he sings his songs and they he wanted them to play them you know the way they felt like playing them and it's a really i saw them um a couple times at hardly strictly bluegrass and also at the great american music hall a couple years ago and it's a great i mean you wouldn't have thought of that like as being a a collab- musical collaboration, but it really works. And so let's listen to a song that they put out fairly recently called Tokyo Bay. All right. Tokyo Bay by Nick Lowe and Los 
Straight Jackets. Yes, right. Getting back to the rock and roll of his youth. I'll be long gone, Daddy, when you find my note. But just for the record, this is what I wrote. I'm relocating to a foreign shore. You won't have me to kick around no more. You can't make me stay. I'm leaving today. It's anchors away. I'm shipping out to Tokyo Bay. There's a solemn little geisha pining for me Under a parasol out on the key She knows I'm coming from beyond the sea And she's hoping and praying most fervently That the day's the day of going smoking into Tokyo Bay I'll find a liner, then my plan To work my ticket or some kind of hand Yeah, getting back to the old Lonnie Donegan that's right. Uh, it, it's you know in a little rock pile, and you know I God, I'd love to see rock pile reform again. Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, so many people feel the way that you do. Because oh. I'm on a Nick Lowe fan page and um, on Facebook, and people keep saying, "When are they gonna come oh, back?" Oh, that, that's that would never be a gonna huge happen. Tour. Oh, come on, him and Dave uh, Edmonds are still buddies, and yeah. They're yeah. not so much. I'm as he says, Dave is a, a little bit of a loner, and mm-hmm. uh, actually Billy Bremner uh, is in lives in Sweden, and he's come out with a band doing a rock pile uh, album and touring with it, Ugh. doing all the rock pile That's songs. Gotta it's gotta happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really cool. Um, so I know you're going to talk to Will Birch yeah. uh, next week, but yeah. you know I gotta say the of some of the things I'll find, that I'll find out about the the chip tooth okay, yeah so. yeah um that you know nick is like this great bass player i mean he's got an incredible sense of rhythm he brings a lot of his rhythm to the songs that he writes he's a great you know harmony guy he his voice has just gotten better and better he writes amazing uh songs both you know lyrics and melody and he has an he's just hysterically funny he does a an incredible shtick on stage and um, as he says he has to be like kind of two people um he's the family man like the old duffer guy family man he has a teenage son now and when he's about to go on tour he takes on this different personality apparently like he doesn't remember you know where he's supposed to recycle things and when he's supposed to pick his son up from soccer and stuff like that he's kind of like lives a split personality um but you know that's what he has to do and he's kind of addicted to performing thank god for the rest of us who get Mm -hmm. to go out and see him and, uh, you know, his family knows that. And they, uh, he says, if I didn't perform, I'd just be this old coot and slippers, you know, shuffling around my house. So this saves him from, from that. And so I'm, now I'm that grateful. You've, you've read the book. Uh, I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, you've seen the warts and all. Uh, the sheen is off. You don't love Nick Lowe as much as you did before, right? <laughs> well, I love him, but I know that um, I wouldn't want to have a relationship with him. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like the time, the times that I thought, oh, you know, hero worshiping, you know how Shelly, my love, be damned. Yeah, you know, right, it's like, right. but then you read like, oh, well, oh, no, that, that wouldn't have been a good era to meet him. Yeah. He was into psychedelics. No, that wouldn't have been a good. He was totally drunk all the time. No, that wouldn't, have, you know. So, um, I think he's he's good where he is, and he has a 
a wife that uh, loves him and, you know, and they have a, a, a lovely family. You know, he Pita. got the family that yeah. I'm sure he wanted for a long time oh, but wasn't able yeah. to kind of I'm get. Glad, I'm glad he's around. I'm glad he is still touring uh, in one way or another. Uh, I'd love to see a rock pile reunion. Um, hmm. That would be awesome. Um, but uh, he's still continuing to write and record. Uh, he probably will until the day he dies, and that's fantastic. Um, uh, a very influential character in uh, the rock and roll era, of which we're thankful for. So, uh, and uh, of course, we're thankful for Will Birch to uh, put the uh, the book together, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. You, you Will. highly recommend this. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. If I'm anybody fact- wants to know about Nick Lowe, this is this is the book to read. Yeah, right? and or or just talk to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah just talk to me yeah if you want you know you listen to the podcast you can email me no not email me but you can you know message me on twitter or or instagram or something like that and just say what what year did this happen you know <laughs> i know a lot about nick Lowe, and now i know even more and thank you will birch for writing the book and it's the book I've wanted to read for a long time. I have the galley, which I've ripped into pieces so that I could carry it around with me. But I've ordered, uh, it's coming out in uh, this month in August, and I've ordered a signed copy uh, that will have photos in it. So that will be really neat. Okay, okay. So, uh, geez, we've gone through. So You know what? We're, I'm going to end with the Rock Pile song because we didn't play it earlier. I'm going to play it now. Teacher, teacher. Okay. That's a good one. the wrongs of social injustice oxfam america works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives develop long-term solutions to poverty and campaign for social change and we do it with the help of our friends in the music world the beatles were oxfam supporters back in the day so were the stones and through the years musicians and music fans have helped oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. 
Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 